The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Father, it is truly a blessing to be able to gather in a place like this on your day to worship you. It is a blessing that we can gather like this and, and pray and, and sing and hear your word read and proclaimed and receive communion. I ask, Father, that you would be gracious with Christ Community Church this morning and that you would compel us by your spirit to really worship. Not to be in church, not to listen idly, but to be transformed by the power of your word through your spirit. I ask, Lord, that you would, from this passage, magnify yourself. Make your glory known to us. Help us to see your goodness and your power. Help us to see clearly the great work of Christ to redeem us. Do that, Father, for your glory this morning. And in so doing, I pray that you would fill us with a sense of awe and wonder and joy and unity. Father, we want to worship you as we see you being worshipped here in Acts 2. We want to be like that church that was first blessed by your Spirit and responded to Peter's preaching. I fear, Lord, that we still don't see what it looks like to worship you together as one body. I pray that you would remove the scales from our eyes, that you would cause us to see true worship as one body here. And make a permanent change for us, Father. I pray you would do that for your glory. I pray that you would do that for our sanctification. And I pray you would do that for our neighbors, Lord. That they might see in us the supernatural power of the gospel and be saved too. I ask all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. If you're not there, please open. And if you're saying to yourself, wait, wait a minute. You know, we did this during the community series, and you preached this two years ago. You're absolutely right. So here's the good news. I didn't, I didn't plagiarize my own sermon. <clears throat> I, said, I don't know if that's technically plagiarism. Maybe it is. I don't know. Um, so the approach to this passage will be very different than you've heard it in the past, and, and you'll see why, um, I hope, in just a minute. The title of the sermon is Jesus Followers Worship Together. That might sound odd in the West. Jesus followers worship together. Of course you worship on your own, but we're called to gather and we're called to worship just like we're doing, I hope we're doing, faithfully this morning. For the past three weeks, we've been asking a very simple question. What does it look like to be a follower of Christ? What are our day-to-day lives supposed to look like if we're true followers of Jesus Christ? And we looked Two weeks ago, we said, you know what? If you're going to be a follower of Christ, you have to feed on the word. 
The word of God has to be something that you're in and around, listening to and living out. And then last week we looked at prayer and we said, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, prayer is not an option. You'd be praying at all times, in all prayers, for all people, but especially the saints. And we, we come to the, the third imperative of our six, and it is praise. Or more aptly put, it's worship. And it's not how you worship outside the church, but how you worship in the context of the body of Christ. And that's going to be our focus today. See, the problem over the past two weeks, and I'm sure that you've experienced this, as Westerners, as Western Christians, we hear the call to eat on God's word, and we think, okay, that's my personal reading time, and that's my personal devotion time, and that's my personal Bible study. And then you hear the call to pray, and you go, oh, that's that time alone with God in my prayer closet. And of course, that's all true, and that's all good. But in the context of the Bible, it's not just that. We are called to feed upon God's word, we're called to pray, and we're called to worship together, to gather together and do these very things. In fact, more oftentimes than not, in the New Testament, when, especially in Paul's epistles, when he's teaching these things, he's talking to the church. He's saying, church, pray together. Church, feed on my word together. Church, worship together. It's hard for us because as Westerners, we're always thinking in isolation. The scriptures teach, think in context of community. So we miss this because we look at worship as something we do alone with God and the Spirit in our Bibles. I want you today to see this great calling from Acts chapter 2 and the early church to exercise these, these means of grace together as brothers and sisters in the same family of God here. Now last time I preached this, I, I revealed to you, we talked about some of the aspects of worship that we're supposed to be you know, listening to and, and following the apostolic teachings and we're supposed to enjoy fellowship and we're supposed to break bread and we're supposed to pray together. Those are the functional aspects. I don't want to consider that this morning. I want to consider the fruit of a church that's devoted to those things. I want us to consider what is, what's going to happen to us if we, like the early church, are devoted to God's word and prayer and fellowship and, and singing and breaking bread, what's going to happen to us? And, and I would argue, I'm going to argue this from the passage, there are four supernatural fruits that will result from a church that's devoted together to worshiping God. Number one, it'll produce a supernatural awe. Number two, a supernatural unity. Number three, a supernatural joy. And number four, a supernatural witness. That any church that gathers together and engages in these means of grace will become supernatural by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I'd really like to be part of a church that is filled with supernatural awe, unity, joy, and testimony to the lost. Don't you? The theme of the sermon would be this, then. Churches devoted to worshiping God experience God's supernatural power. Churches... Any local church that's devoted to the true worship of God will experience and display God's supernatural power. Churches that do not devote themselves to worship, well, they would be, as Paul said to Timothy, they'd have a form of godliness, but no power. We don't want to have a form of godliness and no power. We want to have a form of godliness and power, supernatural power. Point number one, then, a supernatural awe. So in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, if you've been here for a couple years, you probably know this passage well. Maybe better than you know some other passages in Scripture. This is, 
So Pentecost had just happened. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. Peter and, and the 120 disciples were speaking in tongues. And so thousands gathered to hear this event that was taking place in the city on the day of Pentecost. And, and as Peter sees the, the crowd out there, he preaches the first post-Pentecost sermon. And he preaches about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he calls them into account for their sinning by putting the Savior to death by their crucifying Jesus Christ. And then God was pleased on that day to pour out his spirit upon the crowd and the church went from 120 to 3,000 in an hour. That's serious church growth. 120 to 3,000. Now, these Christians were not saved and then practicing their Christianity in isolation like we do here. They were saved into a community. They were actually saved into a covenant community. They were saved into this new family that God was making through the blood of his son. One author said, and I I appreciate this, he said, salvation through repentance, faith, and baptism has always been a family-creating event. Isn't that great? When someone comes to a saving grace in Christ, they repent and they believe and they follow Jesus, they're brought into a family and they're to live in that family Now Luke, after describing the creation of this new family, he talks about how devoted they were, how devoted the church in Jerusalem was was to worshiping God. Look at verse 42 again. He said, and they, so he's speaking now of this new family, he said, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They devoted themselves. That word devoted, it means a steadfast, listen with all your might, a steadfast and single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. A steadfast and single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. When Michael Phelps was in his prime, he was truly devoted to the sport of swimming. He exercised, he practiced in the pool. He swam four, five to six hours a day That's eight miles a day, 50 miles a week, six to seven days a week. In addition to his in-the-pool time, he did weightlifting, he did stretching, he did instruction, he did ice baths, and he consumed over 10,000 calories a day to be able to sustain that type of workout. You could argue that at least in the context of the sport of swimming, Michael Phelps would have been considered the poster child of devotion, of what it means to be devoted. What were the results of his devotion to the sport of swimming. 39 world records, 27-time world champion, and 23 Olympic gold medals. Without question, the greatest swimmer of all time. Now, according to Luke, the church in Jerusalem, they approached the worship of God like Michael Phelps approached swimming. They were devoted, steadfast, and single-minded to the worship of this holy God. So they gathered together and they made his word, the preaching of it, the reading of it, they made his word a priority, the apostolic teachings. When they gathered together, they exercised true biblical fellowship. That wasn't just gathering and eating together, that was striving together for the kingdom of God. When they gathered, we're told that they broke bread together, and they certainly did that over a holy ordinance like communion But we also know that they literally broke bread in their homes, eating meals together, just like we do here and just like we do in our fellowship hall. And then Luke tells us they prayed, and they prayed. That church, when they gathered, they were a praying church. It defined 
them. They prayed in the temple. They prayed in their homes. Now we also know, we, we also know that in addition to that, they sang. That's why we sing. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. They sang psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. And if you add in baptism to that, you have really the composite of 2,000 years in the history of the church of, of us doing the same things. When we gather, what do we do? We, we pray and, and we sing and we proclaim the gospel from the pulpit and we read the word and we take communion. And when someone is going to get baptized, we baptize them. And we even, we, you want to talk about authentic? We even eat every single Sunday together to enjoy a fellowship meal. One of the first fruits, according to Luke, when God's people devoted themselves to worshiping God, truly devoted to worshiping God, was awe, a supernatural awe. Look at verse 42 again. And they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, the word awe, it, it comes from a Greek word which means fear, and it can mean fear as in being afraid, as in scared, or in the context here, it's a reverential fear. It's, a, it's a, a, an awesome wonder at the power and the majesty and the work of God in their midst. We're told here that, that the apostles were performing many wonders and signs. So there, there were supernatural healings without question. They were casting out demons. Even a few people were raised from the dead. But what we saw here was not so much that they were in awe over what the apostles were doing. They were in awe over what God was doing in the midst of the Jewish people. And that was bringing many to see that Christ was in fact the Messiah. He was the long-awaited Savior of the Jews and of the world. When they gathered, they, what did they see? They saw once devout Jews now saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They witnessed when they gathered probably, I would argue, the greatest miracle that any man, woman, or child can witness and that's someone actually being saved. You are a a miracle if you know Christ. Someone's heart that has been turned from what? From stone to flesh. Lives of rebellion against God now loving God and wanting to obey God and wanting to follow God's son. They were witnessing baptisms and they were witnessing testimonies and they were witnessing lives transformed by the Holy Spirit. They were seeing when they gathered sinners being sanctified and made holy people now loving each other and loving God and wanting to serve and wanting to grow. You see, my beloved, every time we gather, every time the church has gathered, truly gathered to worship God throughout all of human history, we get to participate in and witness an awe-inspiring cosmic event. Did you get up this morning with that expectation? I'm going to go to church and I'm going to gather and participate, and I'm going to witness an awe-inspiring cosmic event. Did you? I know I'm serious. Did you? No, I didn't. That did not cross my mind when I was eating my Pop-Tart. Okay. When we gather, we get a visual reminder of what God is doing, that God is saving multitudes 
It's not just your personal salvation. As great as that is, when we gather, we get to look around and we get to see that God is actually making a new family, a new eternal family from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation for his glory and for your goodness that you might enjoy it. An awe-inspiring event. In 1963, at the, at the height of the Civil Rights Movement, over a quarter million people gathered at the mall in Washington, D.C. Quarter million people, over 250,000 people from every walk of life. They marched on Washington, D.C. They filled the malls, they filled the streets, and they heard the now famous I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King. They heard that. And at that time, that was the largest civil rights demonstration in the history of the United States. And many who were there, they described it as awesome, awe-filled, awe-inspiring. Many of them probably knew they were participating in a transformational event. Something big was happening. And in fact, it did. That was in 1963. The following year, 1964, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, making it illegal at the federal level for any state to practice discrimination. My beloved, every time we gather as a church to worship the living God in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are participating in an awe-inspiring transformational event. Every time we gather, every Lord's Day, we get to look around and we get to see God's miracle in each other. We get to see people who were once dead who are now alive. Those who were once destined for judgment are now part of the family of God and are being given freely by grace, what? Eternal life. We get to see that. We get to say miracle, miracle, miracle. And we're surrounded by them on the Lord's day. We get to see people born again singing to God. That's not a, that's not a fleshly response. As a sinner, I doubt you sang to God. But we gather, we sing and we pray and we hear the word when we, when we gather like this, we not only see what God is doing now in making a family like this and families like this throughout the world, we get to see what God is doing by making a family that will worship him for all eternity. You remember Revelation 7, don't you? You must. If you're not, I'm going to read to you it again. This is the end picture. These gatherings brought up into the eternal realm. John said, I saw a great multitude that no number could count from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages. Listen, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, that's you, saints, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice. What are they doing? They're worshiping. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. My beloved, the church in Jerusalem, by their devotion to worship, experienced a supernatural awe. I would argue that if Christ Community Church devotes itself to worship, we too can experience that supernatural awe. Amen? There's a second one. A supernatural unity. The church that is devoted to the worship of God experiences a supernatural unity. Look at verse 44. And all who believed, so that's this new church now, 3,000 plus, they were gathered together and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, again, this, when it says, and all, verse 44, and all who believed were together, the, the normal Greek word for that, you probably know, it's koinonia. We've talked about it for years now. 
But that's not the word that Paul uses here. The word that he uses in the Greek, it literally means a gathered community with the emphasis on unity in the body of Christ. They gathered together and they were unified. In fact, we see an example of that unity in the fact that they were, what were they doing? Believers were voluntarily selling their goods and they were using the proceeds of those goods to give to anyone who was in need. And so there was, there was such a unity that even their pocketbooks were not subject to an individual lifestyle. Now, verses 44 and 45, they're, they're problematic for most Western Christians. We hear this, and, and even, my beloved, even in what I would consider healthy churches, we still, most Christians today in the West, we still see ourselves as free agents, right? We, we're saved by grace through faith. Christ is my Lord and Savior. I have the Spirit, I have my Bible, and I'm loosely attached to the church. I'm loosely attached to the family of God. That's not at all what the picture we have in scriptures teach. Um, I think it's evidence, though, not only in how tightly we hold on to our possessions. If someone's in need in the church, like, yeah, maybe someone else will help, right? That we don't, we don't hold on loosely to that. But I also think that, that it's, it's proven by how we safeguard our time, right? How we are possessive of our time, how we're reluctant, even on a, on a Sunday, to give up a few hours I hate even saying that, give up, as though it's something that you're sacrificing when in fact it was something you're gaining. But a few hours on Sunday, very difficult for many of us. A few hours maybe on a Wednesday when the church gathers to do what? To worship God and encourage one another. You can't tell me you're not encouraged when you walk in here and you see your brothers and sisters in Christ. Imagine that it's packed and you look around, there's just people saved by grace everywhere. That's encouraging. Because Western Christianity is still, in many ways, it's individualistic rather than communal, many evangelicals, professing evangelicals like Southern Baptists are, consider Sunday gatherings as optional. Come if you want. Don't come if you don't want. In fact, a recent poll, it's a post-pandemic poll, recently, listen to this, Southern Baptist, since we're Southern Baptist Church, only 57% of professing Southern Baptists gather every Lord's Day. Yeah, I didn't like it when I read that either. This just came out a couple months ago. That's 43% of Southern Baptists who put a high priority on the gatherings, 43% missing some or most or all Sunday gatherings. Grievously, we're in good company 46% of independent Baptists, 47% of the Missouri Synod Lutherans, and 59% of non-denominational Christians gather once a week. The rest do not. And collectively, this is fascinating, we all have the same reasons why we don't gather. Cross-denominational. We don't gather because we're working. We don't gather here because we are having sporting events. We don't gather because we're having family functions. We don't gather because of parties, because of sleep, because of homework. You can say whatever your thing is why you're not here, why you don't gather on the Lord's Day. Even more subtly, though, I would imagine that there are many who do come and they sit and they listen. And most keep your eyes open, and I appreciate that. That encourages me when you don't close your eyes. And and I know you're not in deep meditative prayer. I know that. When when, When your head's bobbing like that, that's a weird kind of prayer. But many of us come and we sit and we listen, but we're not spiritually engaged. 
We're thinking about the homework that we have to do, or we're thinking about the, the, the work next day, or we're thinking about the meal we're going to have, or how hungry we are and wish we had a meal right now. We're not engaged spiritually. We're not engaged relationally. And many in the Western church, they, they treat the gatherings like an hour, hour and a half duty that you have to check the box because you're a Christian and Christians go to church on Sunday. Friends, I'm not, I'm not saying this to be harsh or mean, but I, I want to reveal to you the dramatic difference between the Western church and the gatherings we see here in the book of Acts, chapter two. It's distinct. Our lack of devotion to gather leads to a lack of unity in the body of Christ because one of the things that God does when he gathers us together is he cultivates unity in the body. When we gather together and we worship together and we pray together and we eat together, God uses that to increase our love for one another and our unity in the body of Christ. In fact, in Ephesians chapter four, it's another passage on corporate worship. Paul writes this, listen, he said, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, listen now, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So one of the reasons that he gathers us together is that we might equip each other to grow in our unity until we're like Christ. Well, I don't know about you, but we're not there yet. I'm not there yet, so you need to help me if you already are. When a church's devotion to corporate worship is lacking, unity's lacking. Our unity's lacking. A.W. Tozer, in The Pursuit of God, he offers this helpful analogy, and this is so good, listen. He said, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. Then he writes this, so too, 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become, to, to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship with one another. In other words, the more we gather together and worship God by fixing our eyes on God, the more unity God will cultivate in the hearts and minds of those who gather. The more we sing and the more we fellowship and break bread and pray, God, he retunes our hearts so that we actually have unity in Christ, right? Christ is our head. He retunes our hearts each week that we might be in unity together as a body in our following Christ. I mean, I don't know about you, but after a week apart, I need to be retuned. I need God through your singing and through your prayers and through this gathering, I need God to take my heart and retune it to get my eyes fixed on Christ. And when he does that for an entire church, guess what? We're all looking the same direction. We're all looking to Jesus. And that means we have great unity amongst the brothers. All the hardships, all the struggles we feel during the week, our hearts, they get a little harder, a little more skeptical, a little more discouraged, a little more faithless. And so what does God do? He gathers us together and as we sing, he says, turn your eyes upon Jesus to what? To look full in his wonderful face. Maybe we should sing this. So the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. 
God is retuning your heart every time you gather. And every time we gather, he tunes us so that we have unity together. My beloved, I would argue that at a time when the disunity in this world is at a level that many of us, I'm a little bit older, haven't seen. When you see such unbridled hatred on the world stage, the true church of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, offers true unity with God and with his fellow man. Race, upbringing, education, economic standing, in the family of God, they're all unified by the blood of Christ. He brings people together. And that unity, when cultivated through worship, when people of all different backgrounds and all different ages, when we come together, and we sing together and we pray together and we enjoy a meal together as a family? Well, that, that type of unity, it not only blesses those who are participating, that is a powerful testimony of the world who can't find unity anywhere. They will look at us and say, what is happening there that people that are so different can gather and do what they're doing? It reveals the power of the gospel, my beloved, to transform enemies into family and strangers into friends. All right, so a church that's devoted to worshiping God, supernatural awe, supernatural unity. I got two more, can I give you two more or not? All right, I'll give you one more and then the last one, a supernatural joy. A supernatural joy, look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, so this is what the church is doing, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. So Dr. Luke says there, the early church was worshiping together in two places. One was in the temple. And, and it makes sense. The temple was still the place where, where God was worshiped by the Jews, even though the sacrificial system was no longer being practiced by most Christians at the time. It was still the place to gather and worship God, and it was still the place of prayer. So you had 3,000 plus gathering in the temple courts, which, by the way, the temple courts were... 35 acres or so, so it's a big area, so the church was able to actually, they had a facility, a place where they could go and worship. But not only that, they're preaching and teaching a crucified Christ, and, and all these supernatural awe and joy and wonder they're seeing, and so what a great place for the Jews to see transformed lives by the power of the gospel. So they were still worshiping in the temple, and then it says in the latter part of verse 46, they broke bread in their homes and receive their food with glad and generous hearts. So in addition to the temple, they would gather in, in little tiny worshiping communities in their homes. Now, the average home back then, a large home would have held 50 people. The average home would have held 10 to 15. So I want you to think of a church of 3,000 or so gathering in homes, 10, 15, 20. And you say, hey, wait a minute. That sounds very much like a model that we have here. We gather like this. We're not 3,000, but we gather on Sunday and we worship together on the Lord's Day. And then on Wednesdays, many of us gather in homes together. And so it's, it's something that's very similar to and, and parallels um, the worship they enjoyed in the church in Jerusalem. Now, when we study verse 46, most gravitate, I know that I have over the years, we gravitate toward the structure. We think, all right, they worshiped in the temple, and they worshiped in the home. That's us gathering on Sunday, and that's our small groups. That's how we're going to do it, too, because we want to be biblical. And so we, we focus on structure. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, but I want you to notice, the highlight of the verse is not where or how they worshiped. 
the highlight of the verse is the fruit that it produced. Look at verse 46 again. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with what? With glad and generous hearts. Glad and generous hearts. Now that, you, you could probably better translate it. They, they worshiped together and broke bread together with exceedingly joyful and sincere hearts. I would, I would change it if I were to be translating this myself. The word glad, I mean, I'm sorry, glad is just not a word that, in, at least in the English, um, my son, my youngest son Joshua, he flew back uh, yesterday from Boston. He was at a, uh, at a, uh, a crew meet. And uh, if I were to call him today and I said, Joshua, how was your flight back from Boston? And he said, oh, Dad, I, I'm really glad it was on time and, and we made it without issue. That would be an appropriate worse, wor- use for that word, I think. But if I asked him, hey, Josh, how was your flight back from Boston? He said, you're not going to believe it, Dad. They canceled my flight. They put me in, a, in a, an F-18 Super Hornet, and they flew me coast to coast at the speed of sound. I don't think he'd use the word glad. He likes to fly as I do. I imagine he would have said to me with exceeding joy in his heart, they flew me home in an F-18. And I would have said, well, I'm glad for you. <laughs> I would have been jealous, actually. <laughs> Coveting. The word glad here in the Greek, it means, listen, wild joy, ecstatic delight, exaltation. In other words, their devotion to the worship of God produced an exceeding joy in their hearts, a deep joy in their hearts. Now, this was a joy not produced because their worship services were so entertaining or because the the music was so good, sorry Brandon, or the preaching was so good, sorry Keith. That wasn't the product of this joy. They were experiencing this joy, listen, because they were able to gather and they were able to come into the presence of God as sons and daughters in a new family. They were experiencing joy because instead of being judged for their sins, which they justly deserve because God is holy and they are sinners, instead of being judged and eternally condemned, they knew Because of the work of Christ, they have been saved by grace through faith and they could gather. They could come into the presence of God and they could sing week after week. They could pray and they could hear the word. They could remember Christ through the communion ceremony. You see, my beloved, it was Jesus' work on the cross. It's his work that enables us to do this enables us to gather like this 2,000 years ago. It was his work that enables us to be set free from the power of sin and to gather and actually worship God joyfully. Jesus, by bearing the awful wrath of God, enables us to what? Experience the awe-filled mercy and love of God. By ascending the cross and being forsaken by God on that cross, no longer enjoying perfect unity with the Father. Jesus is able to reunite all those who repent and believe, all those who have been forsaken by God. He's able to reunite us and bring us into this family to enjoy unity with God and with one another. By bearing our sorrows, the man of sorrows is able to, to give us his joy. I'm talking real joy. Joy that transcends like peace, all understanding. 
So when we gather like this and we truly worship, not going through the motions, but we're here and we're worshiping, we do it not to put God in our debt, so we'll say, see, Lord, I gave up three hours on Sunday or two hours on Sunday, now you must let me in. We don't do it for that reason. We don't gather in fear thinking, I hope we're doing it right or we'll be cast out of heaven. We don't do it with a divided heart, I pray. We don't do it with a distracted heart. My beloved, we are to gather because Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So that instead of judgment, you and a sinner like me could be saved and brought into this eternal family. That's how much God the Father loves you through Christ. That's how much Christ loves you. That he'd be willing to do this so that we can worship and adore God with exceedingly joyful and sincere hearts. Real worship, my beloved. As I was praying on this, I thought maybe, maybe, I don't know, but maybe one of the reasons that the attendance is so poor in the Western church today, maybe one of the reasons we, we struggle gathering is because we still approach worship with a consumer mindset. And if you were raised in America, you were raised to be a consumer. You were raised to think, what do I get out of this? And you think about that on most things. If you approach church, if you're here this morning to get something, I would argue that you'll be blessed if you're here to worship. But if you're here to get something out of church, you will never know this type of exceeding joy. You will not know it. Because the joy that's a product of our devoted worship to God is because we come not to get but to give. We come not to get something but to give honor and glory and adoration and worship to the one who is worthy of it. Right? When we gather to worship, we're, we're here to praise God for who he is and what he's done for us in Christ. True worship, my beloved, is you dying to yourself when you enter these doors, coming before a holy God and expressing your deep love for him. Is that what you're doing right now? Are you worshiping God in that manner? Putting him above all your wants, all your desires, all your American consumer, gotta have it, give me something or it's not worthy of my time. When I was a child, I... You are probably the same. I loved birthdays, and I loved Christmas. And, and I loved Christmas not because I knew anything about Jesus. I knew I was going to get presents. And, and I, I, think, I think most people like getting gifts. Um, I know as a child, I loved getting gifts. As a parent, and now as a grandparent, I have exceeding joy during these times of year. There was joy when I was a child getting a gift, but now that I get to give gifts... The joy is, is beyond description in many cases. I'm able to express my love and adoration for people like my wife or my parents or my children or my grandchildren or you. I get to enjoy giving that way. I remember one particular Christmas when my boys were little, they, they all wanted, they all wanted these buildable action figures called Bionicles and they were the just ridiculous, ugly looking toys, I thought, but they were very popular, and they wanted them, and they had talked for months about getting these Bionicles. And, and I remember, so we, got, we each got them a little box with their Bionicles in it, 
And, and I, we got them early, and I could not wait. I, I almost gave them to them before Christmas. I was, I was bursting with excitement to see their excitement when they opened it. And when they opened it, they, they all three squealed like little tiny pigs and ran around the house. And I can tell you in that moment, I don't remember a thing that I got that Christmas. But I can tell you I had exceeding joy in my heart watching them rejoice in the gift they received. The gift that I was able to give. My beloved, we gather to give ourselves to God. We gather to give as we bless the creator of the universe. You will be blessed in return. God will bless you. But that's not why you should be here. If you come to simply worship, if you come to adore God and express your love for God, if you come to pray to him and to sing to him and to listen to this word and say, Lord, show me how to walk in righteousness. If you do that, there will be joy in your heart. If you gather to bless your brothers and sisters, you say, listen, I'm tired today. I'm not feeling well today. I don't even want to be here today, but I want to bless my brothers and sisters so I will come to encourage them, to lift them up, to love them. You do that, not getting but giving, and you'll have joy. This type of joy in your heart when you gather. A joy that exceeds any other joy you could possibly have on the Lord's day. Whatever it is you're going to replace this time with, you're going to go do something else. I know this time of year people stay and stay at home to watch football games. I like football. I get some joy out of football. I get exceeding joy here. When we gather, there's exceeding joy. All right, can I, I, I have one more for you. You said I'm, I'm full. You've already given me awe. You give me unity. You give me joy. I got to give you one more because the text does. Look at verse 46. Point number four. When a church is devoted to worshiping God faithfully, there's a supernatural witness. And, and this, my beloved, if you love the lost, this will be your most compelling reason to gather if you love the lost. Look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous, with exceedingly joyful, sincere hearts. Verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were, were being saved. So they're worshiping in the temple, they're gathering in the homes and Luke tells us that they were being thought well of. In other words, there were lots of Jews who were watching them proclaim Christ and worship Christ. There were lots of Jews who were seeing them filled with awe and unity and joy and, and those Jews who were there, they were being blessed by it. They were being blessed by the people of God worshiping God. And, and, and I imagine some of them were invited into these homes. And they, they gathered in these homes, 15, 20 people, and they, they would eat a meal together, and they would sing together, and they'd pray together. And, and they were being blessed by that too. Some of them wanted to come in. They were drawn in by the work that God was doing. In other words, the supernatural awe, unity, and joy that God did here had an evangelistic impact. It impacted the lost. It wasn't just something done in the midst of four walls. One author rightly put it this way. He said, the early church proved that how we live together as the family of God is the most persuasive sermon we will ever get to preach. Did you hear that? 
How we live as the family of God is the most persuasive sermon we'll ever get to preach to ourselves or to the world. I believe that to be true. The result, latter part of verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In verse 41, we're told that the church went from 120 to 3,000. And here, as they gathered and as they worshiped, God was pleased to bless their worship with sinners being saved by grace day after day after day. Now, I want to be careful here theologically. God's the one who saves. It was God who was adding to their number. It was God sending the Holy Spirit, making the dead person alive, causing them to be born again, to be indwelt with the Spirit, and to repent and confess their sins, get baptized, join the church, and follow Jesus. That's God's doing. But I don't want us to fail to see that he was doing it day by day through his new family. Did you notice that? By by gathering people together as a family, and by that family being devoted to worship God and experience the, the unity and the joy and the awe of that worship, he put on display, first in Jerusalem, then Judea, and then where? To the ends of the earth, including San Jose. He put on display his majesty, and his power to utterly transform lives through the church. You see, my friends, by creating a new family, a true family that worships God, not a family that's bound together by our ethnicity or education or economic standing, but a family that's bound together by the blood of Jesus, by creating a a family that worships truly worships and experiences the supernatural awe, unity, and joy that our worship will produce, God displays his power to change sinners into saints. He just puts that power on display. You see, as fallen creatures, we know this. We're always seeking to be awed, are we not? I mean, life is not very awe-filled at times. We seek to be awed in in that new job that you can't wait to get and then a year later thinking, I gotta get out of here. You're you're awed by that new relationship or that, that next movie that you just can't wait. I mean, springtime comes and you're waiting for that summer blockbuster because you wanna be awed by it. In Christ, listen, God offers you real awe and wonder beyond your wildest dreams. An awe of having an intimate forever relationship with the creator of the universe, with the king. Deep down, I believe that sinful man wants a form of unity. We seek unity in our marriages and oftentimes can't find it. We're seeking in our country. Right now, we're desperately trying to bring some form of unity in the Middle East, and yet it's always evading us. God, through Jesus Christ, offers you true unity. And when I use that, 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 that term in the Old Testament, shalom, that's completeness, that's wholeness. He offers that in Christ to you inside your own soul, your own heart and mind. Most of us are so filled with anxiety all the time. That's not wholeness. That's not unity. He says, through Christ, you can have it. You can have it in yourself. You can have it with God and you can have it with others. True unity. I believe sinful man knows the sorrow that sin produces. You ask anybody, they can testify to how sin wrecks our lives. It wrecks and taints every aspect of life. 
People we love, they die or they move away. Jobs that we enjoy, we lose. Health gives way to sickness. Security gives way to fear. Two weeks ago, my beloved, the nation of Israel was preparing to celebrate Simchat Torah. And it's, it's the beginning of their annual celebration where they read the word. They read the Torah. They begin at the beginning and they read through the end. The holiday in the country, it's marked by, by things that we do when we worship. It's marked by singing. It's marked by praying. It's marked by dancing. They actually dance with the Torah. Today, two weeks after the beginning of that celebration, which was supposed to be filled with joy, over 1,500 Jews have been brutally murdered and over 200 still remain kidnapped by Hamas. No lasting joy there. There's no lasting joy here, my beloved. But God, through Christ, offers you a joy that cannot be touched an exceedingly abundant, wild joy that circumstances in this life cannot touch. Your hope in Christ, as we had a chance to sing, it's unshakable, right? If you've been saved by grace, if you've turned from your sins and you've put your faith in Christ, you're in the family. You're a son or daughter. And you cannot be removed from the family but a great thing not to be able to get out of the family of God. You're in the family now and God promises all his children that this family will be brought into his presence to enjoy eternal life with him, the Son, the Spirit, and God's people forever and ever. When the family of God puts on the supernatural power of God as displayed through worship, those on the outside will take notice and many will want to come in. Many will want to come in. This is, my beloved, the attractional model of the church according to the word of God. It's not the attractional models of the Western church today where we become more like the, church, the world, we dress like the world, we sing like the world, and we act like the world thinking then they'll come in. That's a fool's game. This is the attractional model. God says to every church, be devoted. God says, be devoted to worshiping me. Gather together to pray and sing and have fellowship and break bread and exchange in my word, devoted to it. And God says, I will produce in you a supernatural awe, unity, and joy that will set the world on its edge. And they will want to come in. They'll want to be added to the membership. God did this great work in Jerusalem, saving many through the faithful worship of his new family, the church. As I close this, I thought, why won't God do the same here? He can. Why wouldn't he add to the numbers of this church and every true church day by day those who are being saved? Why not use our worship as we are devoted to worshiping God in spirit and truth? as we experience the supernatural awe, unity, and joy, why not God doing that here? I believe he can, but if he's going to, I believe that our worship has to be more in line with Acts chapter two than it is right now.
I believe that as a church that we need to see this type of true worship and the supernatural power being manifest in our midst. And it means, my beloved, that the Lord's Day is supposed to be set apart for God. That's why it's called the Lord's Day. A day set apart for true worship and true west. west. Not an hour of service that you lose in your life. Uh, I'm here, but now I get to go. I'm talking about every one of us being devoted to praying together. We gather as a church at 9.30 to pray as a church together. It means us gathering and singing to God, really singing. And I, you sang this morning. You were singing this morning. It means hearing the word read and, and preached and taking it in. It means praying faithfully. It means taking communion, which we're going to do. It means enjoying a, a fellowship meal together, which we're going to do. And you're welcome to join us on the Lord's Day. It means being present spiritually and relationally, engaged in what is happening when the saints of God gather. My beloved, the application for this teaching is not complicated. When the church gathers, gather. There was an old saying in the SBC circles, when the doors are open, go through the doors. When the church gathers, gather. I would say it's not complicated, but I would say it's a challenge today if almost half of our brothers and sisters in the Southern Baptist Convention do not get to church to worship God faithfully on the Lord's day, then we got issues. Christ Community Church does not have to model the Western church. We don't have to. By the power of the Holy Spirit and out of our great love for Christ, we can make a conscious, willful, spirit-led choice to gather and worship and experience God's power week after week. And if we do, maybe, just maybe, God will be pleased to add to our numbers day by day those who are being saved. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it's obvious that this church in Jerusalem, your, your first post-Pentecost body of believers, um, they were captivated by you. Truly captivated. They were devoted to worship, Lord, not because they had to, but because they wanted to. They were so in awe of who you are and what you've done in Christ to save sinners like them. I imagine that one of the apostles' greatest struggles then was to tell the people to stop gathering and stop worshiping together. Make that a problem here, Lord. Bring us together as a body when we gather to be truly devoted to worshiping you. And in our worshiping gatherings, Father, I pray that you would cultivate a supernatural awe, a supernatural unity, and a supernatural joy that is so powerful and so overwhelming that the world cannot help but take notice. And then if you would, Father, be pleased to add to this body those who are being saved.
Father, of course, we ask this for your glory. You're worthy of it. But what a blessing it would be for us if we could worship you like that. Do that for your glory and our well-being, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.